and that's not even the whole story. That's just a, kind of the center part of it. Last week, we introduced it and looked at uh, verses 1 through 16. And today, uh, we'll be looking at uh, the sort of a good part of the story. The last few weeks, we've been looking, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I introduced the idea of, of God's delay. In, um, you remember in the conversation in chapter 10, uh, Jesus, if, the way John has written this amazing book is he, he's recorded several long, run-on, contentious conversations between Jesus and those that were so opposed to him. And, and really, in the structure of the book, it gets, gets hotter and more contentious, more difficult, more painful, to the point where they are going to crucify him. Early on, and this is over a period of like two and a half, three years, uh, what John is recording for us here. Uh, early on, they decided that he needed to die. It wasn't a last-minute mob rush. They, they were looking for a way to get the evidence on him. Uh, they were the opposing team of, of attorneys or, or investigators looking for evidence to try to convict him of sin, uh, to try to have enough reason to bring him to death, execution. And uh, a few times, you know, it's come right to the very, very edge. Uh, at least twice they've said, they've picked up stones, ready to stone him. Uh, the one is where he says, before Abraham was, I am. That's at, at the end of chapter 8. Uh, and they, they pick up stones to stone him there. See, ver in fact, the very last verse of chapter 8. So they picked up stones to throw at him. Again, this is really a tense situation. Uh, there's a group of angry men, uh, who knows how many, quite a few, and they've literally bent down and picked up some rocks, boulders, stones to throw at Jesus. That's how tense this was. And then it, we, it comes to that same head again in chapter 10, uh, where Jesus makes the bold statement, I and the Father are one, which in the Jewish ears, and rightfully so, pulls up what is called the Shema, Shema O Israel, which is hear, the, the Hebrew verb to listen is Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So when Jesus says, I and the Father are one, this is it, this is blasphemy. You know, and they're saying, you know, forget due process. <laughs> Let's hang him. Let's kill him. Let's, let's, you know, slow, painful, public death. None of this, you know, sterile environment of an execution we might think of today. They want it now, and they want to kill him. See, so again, and, and, and they're not just, you know, discussing this. They're picking up stones to throw at him, you know. Uh, see verse 31 of chapter 10. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Now, if you could, some of you were here, a lot of you were here. Rewind a little bit. Remember uh, my sermon on that. I, 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 I speculated. I said, well, what are some of the things Jesus could have done at that moment? 
Who is Jesus? He's the Son of God. He is God himself. He has all power at his disposal. He could have evaporated them. He literally could have stopped thinking them for a second, and they would be no more. Or, or he could have done something sounds like crazier, but he could have, you know, gone to Disneyland. <laughs> he escaped, gone off and been somewhere else in time. He could have traveled to the future. Or, you know, you know I had this silly idea, maybe he could create a force field around himself. You know, I know that's kind of silly, but our rock theology of what is revealed is that's actually true. He has all this capability. But what does he do in John 10? He continued the conversation with them. He had an interesting human hook in the conversation to pull them back, to make them pause, to have them think about what their law says. And it's, it's not even like the absolute best argument, but it sure caused them to think. And um, at that time, that sermon a couple of weeks ago, I made this point. For whom is this delay helpful? The immediate answer is, well, Jesus saved his neck. Whew, he got out of that one by being tricky in the conversation. <laughs> no, <laughs> no. He literally engaged these rebellious folks in conversation for their good. And he gives them what? An opportunity to repent. They're, they're going to have a more time to think about who Jesus really is. And they're not going to take this drastic action at this time. Mind you, the drastic action will happen in about four or five months from this, this time, chronologically. But the delay of God, the delay of God's justice, the delay of God's wrath, the delay of the great day of the Lord is for our good. He's giving us opportunity to repent, to come to him, to change, to listen, to reconsider the word again. And then in chapter 11, the first part, we have that same theme develop um, where the Lord is delaying action. And in fact, it's quite provocative, perhaps poignant, that look at uh, verse 5 and 6 of chapter 11. You know, the scene is Lazarus is gravely ill, and th there's these three siblings that live together in a little town um, a couple of miles or so from Jerusalem. The siblings are Lazarus and his two sisters, Mary and Martha. And uh, Lazarus is super ill. Now, up to this point, we haven't met them. But we find out in this story that uh, Jesus was like super close to these people. He had been to their house many times. He loved them, um, and they loved him. They were, they were tight. They were super tight. So the, the girls, uh, the sisters, say to Jesus, hey, come, Lazarus is really sick. You know, we need you. Come quickly, essentially, is what they say. And here's the poignant part, right? Verses 5 and 6. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. 
We love them all. So, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, what should come next? Right? Next word should be, he dropped everything and zoomed over there. He flew. Earlier in the gospel, when Jesus got into the boat in the middle of the lake of Galilee, they got to their destination immediately. Anything's possible with Jesus. But that's not what we see next. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. So we have this same idea that God is working a plan. It's a perfect plan, but it befuddles us. <laughs> and a lot of times the plan includes a lot of pain and suffering that at the time we don't understand. And we're rocked back to the reality. We, we walk by faith, not by sight. We trust him even when it's difficult. So let's continue this idea. God's timings. I got that because uh, I you know, had the privilege of traveling in India a couple of times. At, I was the, uh, the guest of some beautiful Indian people. And I remember being, I think it was, I, I honestly think it was a bus station or it might have been a train station. And it had this fantastic schedule, you know, by the minute, exactly when everything was supposed to happen. And I was just kind of looking, looking at it and my host said, Indian timings, brother. <laughs> Indian timings. And then he went on to explain that uh, the thing actually doesn't work by that schedule at all, but it's sort of posted like that, you know? So that's Indian timings. And um, here we look at God's timings, how he does things, or I say perhaps faith on trial. Let me read the text. Like I said, it's a story. It's a little bit long. But we're going to look at it this week and perhaps even dip into it next week. We'll see how things all work out. Okay, verse 17. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. This probably indicates that they were a fairly well-known family and had a lot of friends. They might have been influential. Verse 20. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Those are those, those, are those present tense verbs. Are you currently believing this? She said to him, yes, Lord. 
I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. This, this word weep, there's two words for weep in our text, and this is a, a loud crying out, almost a Middle Eastern, you know, loud, ruckus. I, I, I once did a Middle Eastern wedding, and right in the middle of the wedding, uh, there was a group of like four or five ladies, they started going, la, 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 la. It was the weirdest thing ever. I thought, oh, is everything okay? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> ever, ever been there or seen that? It's just interesting sort of Middle Eastern covered to, to, to express joy. And in this case, it's literally to weep and wail loudly to express pain and sorrow. It's a way of showing respect for Mary and Martha. We love you. This is a huge loss. I think some, sometimes, this is an aside, a <laughs> real, real short aside, but I can't resist because it's, it's, I think it's super important. And I, I think in, in our culture, we suppress this sort of thing too, too much. It's, it's good to cry. It's good to weep. Now, we may not weep and cry loudly like Middle Easterners, but we should. You know, what did Jesus say? Blessed are those who suppress their grieving and hide it, they will be comforted. Oh, no, no, oh, wait a minute. It doesn't say that, does it? No. It says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Um, I speak as a, a guy, I used to work in a hospital, saw a lot of death and done a lot of funerals. And I, I just have a personal opinion that it's, it's good to grieve. It's important for us to acknowledge the loss of our loved ones. And it's not unfaithful. You know? They thought they, they knew Lazarus was good with God, uh, but they acknowledged the pain of his loss. Okay, that, I said that was an aside. That was only 60 seconds. Okay. So that, this is that one kind of weeping, real, real loud. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. See, now I, I ask you, there's two independent statements here that are exactly the same. The, you know, the, both sisters said verbatim the same thing. Let me ask you this. Do you think they were saying that to each other earlier? <laughs> I think absolutely. I think they were, that's their, that was their heart. Oh, if Jesus had only made it, if he, had only been here. He could have changed it at that point. When Jesus saw her weeping, that's that same loud kind, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was greatly moved 
in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Now, I'm not saying Jesus would never do the la-la-la-la-la thing. He might have at some point. But here is actually a different word for weep. And it really just means like he just, just tears started falling off of his face. You know, he, just, he was weeping, crying, probably silently. Uh, and, and, and everybody could see it, though. It's very dramatic that he was... And he's, he's in transit, you know, they're come, come and see. So as he's walking and all of this commotion and the sorrow of the moment, he's moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Was that unfaithful of Jesus? You know, who knew the end of this story? <laughs> yeah, Jesus knew the end. And it was not unfaithful for him to enter into the grief and sorrow of the situation and to weep with those who weep, and to rejoice with those who rejoice. Verse 36, so the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb it was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. You know, there's no embalming here. There's no refrigeration. So there's an advanced state of, of decay. There's no question about it. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! The man who had died came out. His hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this fantastic account of this event, how John alone records this so important event for us, how he weaves it into the whole purpose of his book to show that Jesus Christ is who he said he was, who he is God, he's the Messiah, the Son of God, and yet fully human, fully man, the two in one, a great mystery, but a mystery revealed, and so we receive it by faith. Lord, help us as we spend a few minutes
thinking about some of the implications of this text. For your glory, I pray that you would be glorified and help me, Lord, to bring you glory and honor. In Jesus' name, amen. So, let's look at this. As I said, these are just some uh, observations of this great story, and uh, we'll see the Lord uh, has a lot to tell us here. God's timings. First of all, God seems slow, but it brings revelation. God seems slow. He purposefully stayed two extra days, and he knew that by the time he got there, Lazarus would be dead for four whole days. I know I get in these funny little scientific things. I love science. And I mentioned it last week. I, I researched it again. There are, there are, they don't even know. Scientists don't even know how many cells are in the human body. But there's between 50 and 100 trillion cells in the human body. 50 and 100 trillion cells in the human body. And they were all dead. All of these cells in Lazarus were dead, decaying, recycling to go into the dirt. And, and Jesus knew this. And God seems slow, but it brings revelation. Earlier I said God's slowness, is his waiting brought the chance for repentance. And here in this text, we see another beautiful thing. God's slowness to bring ultimate judgment and justice and perfection and peace has brought revelation, information that facilitates, that brings repentance when we meditate on it. Revelation is more important than a quick fix. Why doesn't God just fix this quickly? Why doesn't he just heal me now? Or he might say it a little bit more modestly. You know, Lord, it would be awfully nice if you just fix this situation now. Why doesn't he? Well, one of the reasons is he wants to reveal himself. And revelation, information about God is actually more important than a quick fix. I'm saying this in the macro context of the entire creation epic. God honestly could have designed it so that the problem of the sin was like 90 seconds. That's it. 30 seconds. Three seconds. A millisecond. He could have. He could have fixed it. He has all power to immediately fix the problem. But he has not. He did not. We wouldn't have this story if he had fixed it quickly. So in this situation, in this little story, in the microcosm, we can see that Jesus purposefully delayed fixing the problem so that some amazing revelation can come out. We're going to get to that in a minute. When God waits, let us learn. As you and I are waiting for God to bless to bring about what we're hoping for. Let's learn. That's why he has given us waiting times, so that we know more about him, so that we can be drawn to his precious word to learn what is this faith we're supposed to be walking by. He hasn't left us in the dark, and it's not a faith that's a leap of faith into nothingness, 
but it's a faith that's informed and he has revealed himself very carefully and very articulately. When God waits, let us learn. And painful questions are okay. You know, there's no reprimand of Jesus in this text. Sometimes commentators or Bible teachers, we kind of want to reprimand the lady, you know? Come on, ladies, you shouldn't ask Jesus. Can't you, when you say, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, couldn't you have thought, wait a minute, he's powerful enough to fix it now. Uh, no, but there's no reprimand here. Jesus allows us to ask the painful questions, the questions that come out of our pain, and even the questions that seem faithfully edgy. They're really asking, like, God, what are you doing? Now, is that a biblical idea? Absolutely. We could bring lots of evidence for it, but one prime evidence is a psalm that's numbered 22, Psalm 22. What is that psalm? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's a psalm written by a human being. It's a human prayer based on this whole idea that God's slow. He's not fixing it quickly. Why are you doing this? It's not unfaithful to ask the question. The unfaithfulness comes when we say, okay, I've asked the question. I didn't get the response I wanted. I quit. I don't believe anymore. I don't want any more information. I want to run away from the revelation of God. The faithful response is, let me hear. Let me learn. Let me ask these painful questions and hear what God might say and study the scripture, and ask faithful folks who have gone through similar problems before, how did you handle this? Could you pray for me? I'm very excited about this prayer vigil. I'm thankful for uh, the burden of Clinton to do this. But, you know, we need to pray. We need to ask God for his blessing. We're, we're actually focusing in uh, also in the prayer vigil on Easter, which is coming up the very first week of April. Uh, I think it's the 4th or something like that. And, you know, we want to worship Jesus Christ every day of the week, seven days a week, uh, 31 days a month. But it's really wonderful to specify and think this is the day of we, his resurrection. And we're, we just want to come together and worship him and lift him up and have people marvel at the power and wonder and glory of Jesus. So let's pray about that as we, we work through that. What is revealed? I've said that the delay, the waiting, the slowness brings revelation. Well, it, look at this text. And, and this is what I'm kind of saying. These words wouldn't have been recorded, wouldn't have been spoken wouldn't have been transmitted to us 2,000 years ago if Jesus had said, okay, bang, he's fixed. You know, he has a really bad flu, he has double pneumonia, no problem, you're good. Yeah. No, the process of the pain and the loss and the sorrow produces all this opportunity for God to reveal himself. And I think, as I said, in the macrocosm of all time and space and life. 
That is a gem to understand. What are you doing, God? Well, I'm telling you. I'm revealing myself. So what is this revelation? Jesus is compassionate. Uh, there's this great verse in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 4. It's one of those verses that if you've been around the church most of your life, you've heard it many, many, many times. It's a beautiful revelation about the we, we celebrated the body and blood of Jesus. He came as a real human being. He became a human for us. Part of that is so that he could feel what we're going through. Feelings are important. God's not the cold-hearted, designing, scientific engineer who doesn't notice that people are in the room. I'm not trying to insult any engineers in the room. I had an engineer tell me this yesterday, okay? So uh, he said that my problem is I don't even notice people. <laughs> I'm all about the engineering, you know? God's the ultimate engineer. He's the absolute, perfect, amazing engineer. A hundred trillion cells standing up here talking to you. <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> that beats the moving parts or non-moving parts in this piece of junk. <laughs> Can you say that? <laughs> Where am I? But he's, but he's a full person. And you and I have to be pushed to be full people. Holistic, scientific, and feeling, and the whole experience. And here it is, 4.14 and following. Since then we have a great high priest. You know, praise God that he's the great high priest. Nobody else is the great high priest, but Jesus Christ himself. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Don't give up on the revelation, even if you doubt it. There's lots of evidence against it. But don't be persuaded by that uh, partial evidence. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to to sympathize with our weaknesses, but who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Charis, Eucharist, Charis, the throne of grace. I just, you know, this is a beautiful revelation of God. You come to God and you find out his throne is made of grace. It's not a cold, hard, black rock of condemnation, of wrath, but it's a beautiful throne that is, by nature, grace. Let's come to that throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's the Jesus we have. He wept. He was deeply moved. He entered into the human situation there. He wasn't abstract. He wasn't off at all. Jesus is patient. You and I just revel in the patience of Jesus. He doesn't bring judgment quickly. He's not a quick-acting God. He's slow. And we find grace in his slowness. Jesus is compassionate, Jesus is patient, 
Jesus is the solution. This is the revelation. He's not only compassionate, he's not only patient, but he is the solution. Verse 25 particularly, we, we see this revelation based on the, the pain and suffering of Mary and Martha. They went through that so that we could get this. Jesus said to her, I am. I, and that's the ego me. It's this beautiful revelation that John's carrying through his whole gospel. I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus is this. He doesn't produce it. He doesn't make it happen. He is the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And that word believe is who believes into me. Ace. Into Jesus. We, we are, we're into Jesus. You know, we eat his body and blood. We participate in Jesus. We're in Christ. We're obsessed with Christ. We love him. This is, this is what belief means. If you... If you live and believe you will never die. And everyone, see verse 26, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Are you believing this? He is always God, even when our brother is dead. This is important truth. Even when Lazarus is dead, Jesus is still God. Even when things look absolutely bleak, God is real, and, he, and he's the one we turn to. He's the one of salvation, even when things are absolutely bleak. This is revealed in this story. Faith must be present tense. Okay? This is the actual verbiage of Jesus here. Do you believe this? It's got to be present tense. It does you no good to say, I hope one day to believe that. Does you no good to say, yeah, I believed that at one point. The real question is, do you believe it now? When your brother's dead? Do you believe it now? When it's dark and dreary and scary and painful? Do you believe it now? Faith has got to be present tense. And it's very exciting. It's existential. You know, you, are you now believing? Are you trusting him now? What is revealed? Jesus is compassionate in this story. Jesus is patient with all of them. He's patient with their painful questions. He doesn't snap at them. He doesn't react. He leads them. He guides them, but he listens carefully. He's the, he is the solution. He's always God, even when Lazarus is dead, and faith must be present tense. Now, at the right time, we finish out the text with this. At the right time, God takes action. Now let me read, I wanted to read a little uh, interesting quote here from, uh, I found this in an old commentator. He's talking about the Greek gods, you know, the, the contrast to who Jesus is, who's the real living God. The Greek gods, while they dispense afflictions upon earth, which are neither sweetened by love nor elevated by a distinct disciplinary purpose, take care to keep themselves beyond all touch of grief or care. 
Now that's, that was the contrast. Jesus wasn't an abstract God. He's involved. He's a human. He's with us. God with us, and he cares a great deal about what we're going through. So at the right time, God takes action. He takes charge of the situation. Don't you see this in this text? Jesus starts talking loudly at the funeral. <laughs> He's, he takes charge. He's a, finally, he takes action. Uh, this is so cool because it's so much like the Bible. That little verse that I, I, I quote uh, from 1 Corinthians, we, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. <laughs> He's coming back. And, and the day of the Lord is coming. He will take charge. He will take action. Make no mistake. And this, in this microcosm, shows this. He takes charge. He starts, I'm not speaking out of turn here, but he starts barking orders. He starts telling them what to do. Where have you put the body? You know, Roll away the stone. Lazarus, come forth! You know, is that a loud voice? It's like, well, get, calm down here. Let's go back to you weeping. We just want to see you weeping. <laughs> we don't want to see you taking charge and giving commands. But Jesus is the whole person. <laughs> and he is the Lord. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Hallelujah. He takes charge of the situation. Where have you laid him? He wants to go. And, uh, of course... He says, take away the stone. As I said, this is, what are you doing? You can't do that. I did a funeral the other day, uh, um, a week ago. I mentioned it last week, and, and they had the most beautiful casket. It was uh, an almond wood, actual wooden casket. And after the funeral, I thought, you know, I kind of wanted to open that thing. You know, <laughs> like peek in there, you know. It was shut and locked, you know. It's completely outrageous for me to say this. But I, I just had this thought, like I just wanted to see Betty one more time, you know. And, and I thought, well, you know, you know how outrageous that would be for a pastor to do that? You know, you'd probably, like, never do a funeral again, right? <laughs> it's like, you don't ask for the stone to be removed. <laughs> Who do you think you are? <laughs> well, for Jesus, he's the son of God. He is the all-powerful one. He owns every situation. That's cool, isn't it? Now, I didn't own the funeral. It would have been totally wrong for me to crack open that, uh, hey, you got the key here? This seems to be, seems to be locked. You know? <laughs> totally out of line. Just wrong, wrong, wrong. But for Jesus, this is right. He owns it. Every situation. Hallelujah. Take away the stone. And of course, Mary wants to Martha, rather, wants to correct him. <laughs> it's, it's, it's kind of funny for us, but uh, Jesus doesn't really reprimand her. You know, she's involved. It's a, you know, you don't, want, you, you don't want to do this. Uh, four days, it's going to smell. He, he stinks. No, let's not do this. And then there's these more reminders. Look, look at the text here briefly. Even when... Uh, Martha gives her the good reprimand, I mean, reminder. See verse 39. Jesus said, take away the stone, Martha, the sister of the dead man. Notice that. 
The sister of the dead man said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. You know, Jesus could have said, oh, oh, I didn't know that. Okay, well, thanks. Oh, forget it then. Let's leave that stone in place. <laughs> you keep the key. No, I'm, I'm good. <laughs> you know, <laughs> no, but he doesn't go there at all. Look, look what he does. He uses this delay for more reminders about great truth. You know, there's a pattern here. Delay equals good revelation from God. And, and here's what he says. Um, I, I put it on the screen here. Troubles provide God's glory to be seen. They provide an opportunity for God's glory to be seen. And Jesus emphasizes his dependence on and infallible connection to God the Father at this juncture. There will be an odor for he's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Now, what's the glory of God? It's the outstanding, actual nature of God. It's humongous. It's beyond any capacity we have to even measure. Okay? I, I uh, had an opportunity to hear one of the songs from the movie Selma. And it, I'm sure it's a great movie, and I have tons of respect for Martin Luther King Jr. and, and that movement. It was wonderful. But the song is called Glory. And it comes out of the African-American worship. Uh, they sing a lot about glory, right? They really do. But that song honestly sort of lowered the content of glory because they said what glory would be is when we have equality here on this earth and in America. That's a good thing, and I'm all for it. But I'm telling you, the glory of God beats that every day. And, and in the African-American churches, when they sing glory, they're thinking about a bigger, beautiful, permanent, perfect glory of God that, that outshines any political gain that we ought to have here on this earth. But uh, anyway, that's just a little social comment. Take it or leave it. <laughs> you know, the glory of God, though, is massive. It's like a guy coming out of the tomb alive. And you would see it. It provides an opportunity for God's glory to be seen. And Jesus emphasizes in this delay his dependence on and infallible connection to God the Father. Just again, just look at the word here really quickly. It says, so they took away the stone. They're dramatic. They do what he says. And people go, I don't smell anything to you. <laughs> they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes. He didn't bow his head and fold his hands to pray. That's an okay way to pray, <laughs> but it's not necessarily biblical. Okay? He opened his eyes and looked toward heaven. He lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around. That they may believe that you sent me. So he emphasizes who he is and his, his absolute connection to the Father at this good question of, of Martha. And then 
finally, of course, the great Lazarus come forth. Now, we don't have time for it. We're a little bit over time, but look, jot that down, John 5, 20 through 29. That's where Jesus tells us early on in his ministry that the dead in their tombs will hear his voice and come alive. This is the power of Jesus. And at the right time, God takes action. Unbind him and let him go. And here's an interesting uh, quote I have from John Calvin on this issue. Loose him, let him go. To magnify the glory of the miracle, it only remained that the Jews should even touch with their hands that divine work which they had beheld with their eyes. You know, imagine that for the Jews, too. You, you, if you touch a dead body, it's big problems. But he's no longer dead. <laughs> he's alive. And they, they themselves had to participate in taking off the wrappings, and it made it all that much more real to them. For Christ might have removed the bandages which, Laz which Lazarus was bound or made them to give way of themselves, but Christ intended to employ the hands of the spectators as his witnesses. I think that's great. We should be involved in helping people. Jesus brings them to life and we start helping them strip off the things that bind them. So here's the takeaway. Before anybody else leaves, <laughs> here's, here's what I want you to take away from this. One, improve the wait time. You know, you're, you're in the lobby waiting. When is this thing going to happen? What's the big delay? What's happening here, Lord? Why are you not fixing this now? Improve it by saying, okay, Lord, what do you want me to learn? How about whipping out your Bible and start reading and in that waiting room. Then learn the truth that God has revealed. He has revealed himself. And the wait time, the delay, has caused all this beautiful revelation to be given to you and I. And then do not be surprised by the great day. Do not. It is coming, the day of the Lord, and he will take charge of what is rightly his. Let's pray. Dear Father, thank you for this beautiful power of Jesus displayed in the resurrection of Lazarus. Uh, Lord, we're, we marvel at the beauty and the power of our Savior Jesus. And we ask, Lord, that we hear what you are speaking to us. Help us in those times when we're like Mary and Martha, going through very difficult times. Help us to remember that you grieved with them and you wept as well. And you were deeply moved in your spirit. Lord, help us to remember that in the delay, you revealed yourself more clearly. Help us to look for your revelation in the time that is difficult. Help us to improve our wait times, to use them as a way to improve us, improve ourselves. And then, Lord, I pray that all of us and all of us who hear this message as it eventually may go out on television and the radio. Lord, please help us to be prepared for your coming, to repent of our sins, to come to Jesus Christ as the Savior, the resurrection, the life, and, and believe in him now, I pray. Through Jesus we pray, amen.